0: Well, now we have the privilege of continuing to worship by the hearing and heeding, the uh, receiving and responding uh, to the exposition of, of God's Word. And so we get to go back to our study of 2 Peter this morning, so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at The last section in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And this is one of the passages that I was looking forward to preaching most when we launched into uh, our study of this letter, because this is uh, a passage that is very defining for our church. It's why we, we are who we are. It's why we are Lakeside Bible Church. And it's why I do what I do, why I am a Bible expositor, an explainer of the scriptures. And so it's all wrapped up here in these verses, and so um, let's read them together. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter said, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God, we come before you and uh, we are in awe of this text, because there's so much here that is really beyond our finite understanding. But there's enough here that uh, we can grasp, Lord, that really should define who we are as Christians, who we are as a church. And so I, I pray that you would grant us grace as we tackle this text together today, that the same spirit who inspired Peter to write these exact words, would illuminate us to understand what you meant through what Peter wrote. For your glory and our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Once upon a time in a land far away, a familiar Phrase to anyone who grew up, like me, hearing and watching classic fairy tales like Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Rapunzel, The Three Little Pigs, Jack and the Beanstalk, Sleeping Beauty. And while these stories stirred our young imaginations, at some point we realized that they weren't true. They weren't real and that Santa wasn't real, and that the Tooth Fairy wasn't real. And sadly, many people along the way have concluded that the Bible isn't real. That it's just another fairy tale that happened once upon a time in a land far away. And it's full of tall tales and myths and legends like a naked married couple in a perfect garden a worldwide flood and Noah's Ark, a woman turning into a pillar of salt, Uh, the Red Sea parting so that millions of people could go through on dry land, a young shepherd boy killing a giant with a slingshot, a prophet being swallowed by a whale and living to tell about it, a talking donkey, miraculously multiplying food, Dead people coming back to life, and you could add to that list. But one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is not a fairy tale is the countless lives that have been transformed by it. No hardened criminal has ever been reformed by reading the story of Pinocchio. No drug addict has ever been cured by reading the story of Rumpelstiltskin. No homosexual has ever been set free from their sinful lifestyle by reading The Ugly Duckling. No prostitute has ever been delivered from their life of sin by reading Goldilocks and the Three Bears. No marriage on the verge of divorce has ever been restored by a couple watching Beauty and the Beast. Okay, maybe. Um, No wayward teenager has ever returned home after seeing The Little Mermaid. But numerous people around the world testify that their lives were radically changed forever as a result of being exposed to the Bible, which is evidence that it is truly the Word of God. And yet, there has never been a book that has been attacked as viciously as as the Bible. Throughout history and throughout the world, the Bible has been banned and burned and mocked and ridiculed, and many have been put to death for simply possessing a Bible. But still, the idea that the Bible is a fairy tale persists. And one of the things the Bible clearly teaches that many consider to be make believe is the return of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is a very convenient truth to deny or dismiss or explain away, because if Jesus is not coming back, then there's no judgment, and if there's no judgment, then guess what, you can live however you want. Well, the false teachers in Peter's day were undermining people's confidence in God's word, and specifically, they were twisting the scriptures to explain away the second coming of Christ. But the second coming of Christ was something that Peter firmly believed, and it was something that he mentioned often in his sermons and in his letters, in fact, we just have to look back at the first letter uh, that he wrote, at a couple of references. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He talks about the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which is a reference to Christ's return. Uh, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near, that, that Peter saw this thing coming to an end. And the end was when Christ came back. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Again, a reference to when Christ comes back. Chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Again, a reference to the return of Christ. And then very specifically in chapter 5, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, he'll receive you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And now here in his second letter, the way he tackled this subject of the second coming of Christ in this first chapter and then returns to it at great length in the final chapter suggests that it was one of the doctrines being distorted and debunked by the false teachers. Notice verse 16 of chapter one. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And then verse 16, he's talking about Paul's writings, which contain some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. He's referring to the false teachers that he's going to spend all of chapter 2 uh, describing for us. So I think the point of this passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, has to do with the return of Christ. In fact, one commentator said it this way, Christ's return in glory and judgment at the end of history was the most important gospel truth Peter's readers needed to remember under their circumstances. Remember, he just got done saying, hey, I'm going to do everything I can to stir you up by rare reminder. As long as I'm on this earth, I'm going to keep reminding you of basic truths that you need to know that, that, so you will never forget them after I'm dead and gone. And so he felt that the second coming of Christ was so important that he somewhat bookends his letter with the subject, This commentator goes on, he says, maybe above all other gospel truths, Christ's return provides the greatest motivation and highest accountability for growing in spiritual maturity and living a godly life. Living a godly life is optional, to say the least, if one's heavenly destiny is not involved. But because heaven is a reality for every true believer in Christ, godly living is the only option. And so, first and foremost, I think that Peter was seeking to provide his readers confidence that Jesus is coming back. But at the same time, he also provided us confidence that the Bible itself is a trustworthy revelation of God's truth. And I think his basic point is that what we believe as Christians is not based on tales invented by men, but truths inspired by God. Did you get that? What you believe, what I believe, what we believe as Christians is not based on tales invented by men, but truths inspired by God. And so here in verses 16 through 21, Peter provided two reasons for us to believe that Jesus is coming back. But at the same time, he reminded us that everything that we believe, everything that we do should be based on supernatural revelation rather than personal experience. And so we're, we're going to see a contrast here between um, personal experience and, 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 and supernatural revelation. We're going to see the transfiguration in verses 16 to 18. We're going to see inspiration in verses 19 through 21. The way I decided to, to label these two sections is, number one, the incarnate word, which is a reference to who? Jesus, right? Christ Christ. And then secondly, the inscripturated word, which is not a word you can find in the dictionary, by the way. I didn't make it up, though. Uh, It's a word that theologians will use, uh, scholars will use to talk about the the scriptures, the inscripturated word. So You have the incarnate word, you have the inscripturated word. We see these back to back in this text, um, both providing evidence that Christ will return. So let's look, first of all, at the incarnate word. The incarnate word. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, either Peter was referring to the cleverly devised tales that the false teachers had concocted to rob his readers of their blessed hope in the Lord's return, or he was acknowledging the fact that the false teachers had accused him of concocting stories about Christ's incarnation and resurrection and second coming. Paul used the same expression in his letters to refer to uh, man-made myths that have no basis in fact. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 4, he instructed Timothy to not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Chapter 2, verse 4, Chapter 2, chapter 4, excuse me, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse uh, 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to what, remember? Myths. And then in Titus 1, he's referring to false teachers here, again, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So, the myths that Paul referred to and these cleverly devised tales that Peter referred to uh, were were the fables and the legends about about the gods of of, of their day, the the Greek gods and all of their miraculous events and and extraordinary feats. And Peter wanted us to know that Christianity is not like that, it's no fable, it's no fairy tale. All the miracles, all the extraordinary happenings recorded in the Bible are based on historical facts. And the Transfiguration is just one of many examples of this. But the reason that Peter referred to it here is because it was intended by God to serve as a preview of the second coming. Peter, James, and John were given front row seats to the advanced screening of the return of Christ. They were given a glimpse of what Jesus will look like in all of his glorious splendor when he returns to reign on this earth. And all three synoptic gospels include an account of the transfiguration, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and each one of these accounts is preceded by the promise that Jesus made to his disciples that some of them standing there would, would, would see the coming of his kingdom before they died. Which has led to some confusion for some interpreters going, well, wait a minute. They all died, but Jesus didn't come back. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, again, context is king when it comes to interpreting scripture. Let's look at Matthew's account of the transfiguration. Go back to Matthew 16 with me. Matthew chapter 16 I want you to see the account that Peter was referring to here in 2 Peter. But in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there are some of those, of, of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And it would be very easy to th- sit back in your chair and go, hmm, I wonder what Jesus meant by that. Well, forget about the chapter break. And look what the very next verse says. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And it's as if Jesus pulled back his flesh that was to, to reveal his glory, to kind of reveal who he really was, kind of like Superman, right? Uh, Letting you know that, hey, who's who's this guy in the suit, right? Looks like a businessman or a reporter, but he's actually Superman, right? And so his glory um, came out, and it shone. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, it's interesting Peter never mentioned that when he wrote 2 Peter, because <laughs> he probably realized by then that was a little dumb thing to say right there. Probably felt like after he thought about it, I was like, oh, I, I actually said that out loud? Um, because immediately his words were overshadowed by the words of God himself. Verse 5 While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down, face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Well, by the time he wrote Second Peter, Peter realized that the whole thing about making more of that experience than should be, made of, hey, let's, let's kind of extend this thing. Let's, let's, let's build some little huts and we can, we can hang out up here for as long as we want. He was making a big deal about this experience. But now he's like, you know what? Let me tell you about that experience. Peter was an eyewitness. And not just an eyewitness, an ear witness. right? He saw Christ in all of his glory and he heard God's audible voice. And this is what many Christians today long for, seek after, right? There's some some experience with God like this that involves visions and and voices. And it's not uncommon to hear stories of people claiming that they had some kind of vision or or that God spoke to them. And unfortunately, they, they often place their vision or their, the voice that they heard alongside or even above Scripture, and by doing so, they're making their personal experience equal to or more reliable and more authoritative than the Scriptures. If I were to get up here and say, Hey, God spoke to me this week, and I want to tell you what He had to say, you got one of two options. You, you can. You can uh, take your Bible and turn back to the end of Revelation and find some white space and write in whatever I say. Because we're going to be adding it to the Bible. Which we know, Revelation says, if anyone adds to this book, what should happen to them? Go to hell. So you can either write these things in the back of your Bible and think, oh, that's interesting. Uh, add that to the... Or you can take me out to the burn pile and, and, and burn me as a heretic, Right? Um my, my point is this, right? It's 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 very common for, for even pastors to get up and say, hey, the Lord spoke to me. And and again, I think that's very confusing. Um, and, and again, not that uh, somebody asked me this was a good question after first service. You know, is it is it possible that 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 the Lord provides us some special experience with him outside of the pages of the scripture? I'm like, absolutely. You know, I hear stories about the persecuted church. We just celebrated that, observed that last week. Of these persecuted believers and and then been in prison for fifteen twenty years, and they talk about Jesus coming and visiting them in their jail cell. And I'm like, you know what? If I was in prison for fifteen to twenty years for for my faith in Christ, I would appreciate Jesus coming and let me know if everything's gonna be okay. You know to comfort you, to provide. So I'm not going to say, oh, you know, that probably didn't happen. They were just maybe hallucinating or something. But I don't know what to make of that other than I'll just leave it over here. My point is this, don't elevate that to the same level of Scripture. And don't put it above Scripture, which is what typically happens. Let me give you some examples. Well, let me, somebody else passed on a a quote for me after this first service, it was apparently stimulating to a lot of people, my message, and so he, he provided me this. He said, this is my favorite quote. It's uh, John Owen, the Puritan. He says, if a personal revelation agrees with the Bible, it is needless. If it doesn't, it is false. Pretty straightforward, right? If a personal revelation agrees with the Bible, it's needless. He didn't need it anyway. He already had it here. And if it doesn't, then it's false. Don't believe it. Let me give you some examples. And I know I'm gonna step on some toes here with this example because I know that uh, perhaps a number of you have been impacted and encouraged and helped by this particular resource. It's called Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God by Henry Blackaby. Wildly successful book, super popular. Uh, Millions of Christians have probably uh, gone through the material which is very helpful on, on, on some levels, lots of good truths and insights that have impacted lots and lots of people, helped them to have a deeper walk with God. But it also contains some disturbing and misleading statements about knowing and doing the will of God that I think puts you potentially on some thin ice um, in your walk with the Lord. For example, uh, this is a quote, God speaks uniquely to individuals and he can do it in any way he pleases. So in other words, God speaks to you a different way than he speaks to you and a different way he speaks to you and he speaks to me in a different way than he speaks to you. So God's speaking to us uniquely um, and he can do it any way he wants. I'm like, ah, that kind of opens up a door that I'm not sure I want to have opened. Um, Here's another one. God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible. We good with that so far? Amen to that. Prayer, circumstances, and the church. Again, I think you're on shaky ground a little bit when you're starting to talk about the Spirit of God speaks to you through prayer. My understanding of prayer uh, is that that's how we speak to God. God speaks to us through his word. We speak to God through prayer. But oftentimes, you, you have Christians that are sitting there and meditating and this, just wanting God to speak to them. They wanna hear a still, small voice from the Lord. It's like, hey, if God's gonna speak to you, he's gonna do it through the page of Scripture. So you can have an experience with God every day. Every time you have your quiet time is an experience with God. But it's within the confines of the scriptures. That, that's that's safe. That's that's good. Safe boundaries, right? To have an experience with God is in the pages of scripture. Once you get outside the pages of scripture into circumstances, the church, prayer—I mean—you um, don't know where all that stuff might lead you. And and I think uh, statements like these put experience potentially at the same level as the Bible, and they open up the door for maybe new, special, private revelations. And so there's no end to the chaotic, confusing claims that people, people could make about how God spoke to them. You could come and say, hey, pastor, God spoke to me this week. Really? Okay, what did he say? No. Well, God spoke to me this week, too, and this is what he said. And there's really no way to check or verify whether or not that experience with God was, was valid, was true. I mean, anything becomes possible, and it, be, it, it seems like it's, it's more mystical than biblical, And God never intended us to have have to figure out his will through experiential mystical means like feelings or signs or dreams or or still small voices or promptings by the Holy Spirit. Trust me, I've been there. I've done that. Just ask Kelly how how I just wrapped myself up in theological knots trying to figure out if she was the one that God wanted me to marry. And, And I got all messed up in my head about that. See, when we try to discern God's will for our life through unreliable subjective means like like these, we unwittingly undermine the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. We're basically saying God's word isn't enough. Everything we think, everything we do must be based on the truth of God's word. Why? Because the Bible is the only trustworthy or reliable standard of what to believe and how to live. You might base some things you believe or things you do, how you live, on other things other than the Bible. Well, that's between you and the Lord, but none of that is as stable and, and, as, and as, as true as the scriptures. And I think, furthermore, if our faith is based on subjective experience rather than solidly founded on the objective truth of God's word, then we will be vulnerable to false teaching. False teachers find it easy to, to, to seduce people who don't know their Bible but go around looking for some experience with the Lord. You will fall right into the trap of a false teacher. Another example would be that popular book and movie that was, came out a, a few years back, uh, Heaven is for Real. Remember that? A lot of people were reading that book. A lot of people went to go see the movie and it's just a story, a true story about a little boy who died and came back to life. They were able to re- revive him and he, through conversations with his, his, his dad and mom, he was saying things about family members that were in heaven that convinced them that he had been to heaven because he wouldn't have known any of this stuff unless he had actually talked to these people in heaven, had conversations with Jesus and other people in heaven. And so the, the whole point was, hey, let's, let's write a book about this and 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 let's uh, let's do a movie about this and so people will be convinced that heaven is real because this little boy went there and he came back. There were some guys that wrote a, a blog post about that book and that movie, and their title was Heaven is for real. Heaven is for real, no duh. The point was, seriously, I mean we, we need to have a little kid die and go to heaven and come back so that we believe that heaven is for real. Well, where's this bit? Is this, isn't this enough? I already believe that, right? Um, You may remember me telling this story. Kelly and I were having lunch one day uh, in a local restaurant, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye that this lady over here sitting by herself was reading Heaven is for Real. I didn't think anything of it, and just went back to conversation with Kel, and then I overheard the server come up to the lady and say, hey, what are you reading? And she said, oh, I'm reading this great book, it's called Heaven is for Real, and it's helped me grow more than the Bible. And I was about, to fell out of my chair, uh, and think how sad that is, that, that she actually believed that. I mean, it was, it was impacting her life, it was changing her life, encouraging her, whatever. But either she's not been well taught, right? Shame on her pastor, shame on her church, that I haven't taught her well, that, hey, there's a time and place for good Christian literature, right, to supplement the scriptures, I mean, I'm all about reading good books, um, but as long as they direct us back to the book, right, and uh, that we never put uh, a, another book above the scriptures. I love those books that, uh, you know, you, you open up the first page and it says, if you haven't read your Bible today, close this book and go read your Bible. <laughs> I like that author. I'm like, okay, you got me hooked, man. I like you because you, you're, putting not, you're not putting your book and you don't want anybody else to put your book, right, on the same level or above scripture. But listen, I get it. Words spoken a long time ago in a land far away seem to lack the urgency, the the relevancy of words spoken in the present. And I think that's why there's this natural craving for for some new and novel experience or a, a fresh word from the Lord. But back to our text, even though Peter saw the glory of Christ with his own eyes and he heard the audible voice of God with his own ears, he didn't make a big deal out of it, other than say, oh by the way, just so you know that was evidence that Jesus is coming back. But he affirmed, he went on to affirm that Scripture itself is a much surer, stronger, safer foundation for our faith than any experience we might have, even something as awesome as the Transfiguration. So We go from the incarnate word to the inscripturated word. We go from the transfiguration to inspiration. Look at verse 19. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, what Peter could have been saying here is that his eyewitness experience of the transfiguration of Christ validated and confirmed the prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ's second coming. That just added weight to what the prophets had already said, but... Based on the word order in the original Greek here, it seems better to understand that Peter was ranking Scripture above experience. In other words, God's word is more authoritative, it's more reliable than anyone's experience, even the first-hand experiences of the apostles themselves. And that's why Peter exhorted his readers and us to pay close attention to what is written in God's word. Notice he says, verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do would in which in which you do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So he likens God's word to a, a lantern or a a a, a torch or a flashlight to help pilgrims like us navigate life in this world which was once a beautiful garden before the prince of darkness turned it into a dark, murky swamp. And here we are trying to, you know, plod through, make our way through this dark, murky swamp that we call the, the world while we wait for the return of Christ. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a, what? Lamp to my feet and a, Light to my path. psalm one nineteen one thirty, the unfolding of your words gives light. I was thinking, Perhaps that could be applied to the, to the exposition of God's word, that when you come on Sunday, you bring your flashlight with you, and, and, and you either get a new, a fresh set of batteries, or you get to plug it in, right? Because as the word is unfolded, as we go word for word, line by line, verse by verse, uh, uh, passage by passage, what's happening? The word of God is being unfolded, and, and you are, your, your batteries and your flashlight are getting recharged, Right? Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So the only way to avoid getting bogged down or stuck in the mire of the world is to heed the light of the scriptures, which God graciously provided us to guide us and to warn us and to correct us and to train us and instruct us and encourage us on our pathway to heaven. But if we neglect what God has said in his word, we're left to grope around in the dark and we are bound to lose our way. And notice he says we are to pay attention to this lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In other words, the day's coming, the dawn's coming, right? Christ is coming back and this is a reference here to the return of Christ, so we must follow the light of the inscripturated word, we have got our little flashlights here, until the incarnate word returns in his blazing splendor and majesty and we'll have no need of a light because he will be the light and he will transform us into his glorious image. Philippians chapter 3 talks about how we look forward to that day. Verse 20, this is Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even subject to subject all things to himself. And then... First John three verse two. We're familiar with this text. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what well, we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. So Peter's talking about the coming of this of the dawn and this morning star, which is clearly a reference to Christ. Christ, in fact, refers to himself as that morning star. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So in light of all that, listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had something to say about this text. And what we've been talking about in regards to where divine inspiration or supernatural revelation and personal experience intersect or how we should keep them in their proper place. He says, Why cannot we be contented with the divine oracles, that holy, pure word of God, which we have in such abundance and clearness now since the canon of Scripture is completed? Why should we desire to have anything added to them by impulses from above? Why should we not rest in that standing rule that God has given to his church, which the apostle teaches us is sure than a voice from heaven? And why should we desire to make scripture speak more to us than it does? So why are we so obsessed with hearing something beyond this? Experiencing something beyond this? Why are we so obsessed with that? Why aren't we content with this? Hey, this is what God gave us, the once for all Uh, you know, uh, truth delivered to the saints, the once for all faith delivered to the saints, he says this, they who leave the sure word of prophecy which God has given to us as a light shining in a dark place to follow such impressions and impulses leave the guidance of the polar star to follow a jack-o'-lantern. We just had Halloween, right, a few weeks back. Some of you may have bought a pumpkin and carved it out and put a light in there, right? Put it on your front porch or your back porch or whatever, on a stump somewhere in your backyard, and, and you lit the candle, right? And it's a, a jack-o'-lantern, right? And so Jonathan Edwards saying, hey, listen, if you're, if you're saying, hey, this isn't enough, I'm going to set this aside, and I'm going to go out and seek some kind of vision or some voice from the Lord, uh, you might as well go back out and start praying to your jack-o'-lantern. Because you're, you're, you're setting aside the polar star, for a silly jack o' lantern. Well, we haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. Look at verses 20 and 21, which are one of two key passages in the New Testament from which we derive the doctrine of divine inspiration of Scripture. The other one is, of course, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. I assume you're familiar with that text where. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. And that's really all that Paul said. All scripture is inspired by God. And so he was kind of the the play-by-play guy. And then Peter comes along and gives the color commentary. He he fills in the gaps and kind of explains, well, what does that mean that all scripture is inspired by God? How, how, How was it that God breathed out the scriptures? And so Peter explains it in more detail here in verses 20 and 21. Notice in verse 20 he says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, that verse on the surface could be confusing because uh, it seems to indicate that Peter was referring to how we properly explain Scripture That's what we mean by interpretation. How do you explain it, um, come up with the meaning of it? But really, I think the point he was making here, based on the next verse, and we're gonna see how these verses are connected, is that he really was talking about or focusing on how Scripture originally came into being. And I think a better translation based on the context would be this, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own origination, Now granted, we, we need to make sure that we interpret Scripture accurately. I'm not denying any of that, okay? We, we should never make Scripture say what it doesn't say, nor should we ever listen to anyone who makes Scripture say whatever they want it to say. That's what the false teachers were doing, right? They were twisting Paul's letters to, to, to make them say what they wanted them to say. When, when we try to make Scripture fit our personal agenda, then we're actually making them mean something that God never meant them to mean. And we're actually putting words in God's mouths. You've, you've said that before. Somebody was speaking on your behalf. are like, hey, hey, don't put words in my mouth. That's not what I meant. That's not what I said. You have you ever done that, right? I think God's doing that all day, every day. Hey, whoa, 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 time out. Don't put words in my mouth. I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. And when we do that, when we misinterpret the Scriptures, it not only contorts the accuracy of God's Word, but it also cancels out the authority of God's Word. In other words, we, we sit in authority. We, we sit above the Scriptures, and we act like we have authority over the Scriptures rather than the, authority, the Scripture having authority over us. What, what I mean by that, and, and you've all been in a Bible study. I guarantee you've all been in a Bible study where a well-intended leader said, read a verse or a passage, and then looked up and said, well, what does this verse mean to you? You Have you been there, done that? You've been in a Bible study? What does this verse mean to you? That's the worst question any Bible study leader could ever ask in a Bible study. Because at the end of the day, it makes no difference what you think that verse means. I could care less. I don't want to be mean. I could care less what you think that verse means. And You should care less what I think that verse means. The point is, what does God mean that verse to mean? And that's the, that's the goal of hermeneutics. That's why you have hermeneutics, right? Principles of interpretation, making sure we're applying good, sound principles to interpreting the scriptures, using the, right a, a literal, historical, grammatical approach to the scriptures. We're taking all those things into account as we try to understand um, what a, what a text or a verse or a passage means. So, uh, unfortunately, instead of that, you have a lot of second opinions or first Thessalonians. You know, people just kind of sharing what they think. This is what I think it means. This is what you think it means. It's just shared ignorance is what it is. And nobody's working hard to get to what God meant it to me. Same thing, if I get up on a Sunday morning and say, hey, let's read this text together, and you're thinking, oh, he's gonna preach on that verse, and, and then rather than explaining that text, I just launch into something that has absolutely nothing to do with that text. And you should be scratching your head going, I don't understand, this is, this is not what this text means. I've, I've sat through sermons in my lifetime that I agreed with everything that was being said, and in fact, I was amening what was being said. I thought it was thoroughly true, but it just didn't come from that verse. It's like, that's not what that verse talks about. You, you, that's true, but that's not what this verse means and what it, how it applies. But again, I think Peter was talking here about the divine origin of Scripture. In other words, where did the Scriptures come from? Who wrote them? Were they invented by men, or were they inspired by God? Said it another way when the prophets sat down to write out the scriptures, they didn't simply give their own interpretation of the events and situations as they saw it. They weren't sharing their own ideas, their own opinions, or drawing their own conclusions about the things they saw and heard. And I think this interpretation of verse 20 is affirmed and supported by the verse that follows, verse 21. In which Peter expanded his thought, and it's very clear, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. The Bible didn't originate from the mind or the will of men. It's not a product of human invention, but divine inspiration. Notice, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the word that Peter used there for moved by the Holy Spirit, spoken with God, Luke used it back in Acts chapter 27, uh, describing Paul's journey when he got stuck on that boat, that ship out in the Mediterranean, and, and it was about to shipwreck, and so they were trying to save the ship and save everyone on, on board. Acts 27 verse 15, and when the ship was caught in it and could not, this violent wind... Uh, could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, um, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of uh, Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. So the the picture here that, that Peter is using is 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 uh, of inspiration he likens it to the process of a or the process of inspiration to a ship being carried along or driven along by the wind that, that's filling its sails and the, and the wind that's filling its sails is who the holy spirit I think that's why there are times when the, the writers of Scripture weren't able to make sense of what they wrote, and they, they actually pondered their own prophecies with awe and wonder. You may remember from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, uh, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they're writing this stuff down and scratching their head going, well, what, is, what does this refer to? Who is, who is this talking about? I think that's proof that it was the Holy Spirit who was ultimately directing what they wrote. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who could have inspired the scriptures because he's the only one who knows the mind of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Verse 10, Paul said, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Like ultimately, you don't know my thoughts, only I know my thoughts. I don't know your thoughts, only you know your thoughts. Well, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, guess what? The Spirit knows the Father's thoughts (laughs) because they're one. And so he says, Now we've received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. Compounding spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, I'm not telling you all this stuff I learned from Gamaliel and all my years as a Pharisee, grown up as a Pharisee in school. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing stuff from you that's coming direct from the Holy Spirit. He's teaching me this stuff. Verse 14, interesting, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. In other words, someone without the Spirit of God looks at this and says, oh, that's a book written by men. It's got no more significance or authority than the Quran or the Book of Mormon. In fact, I think that's a bunch of fairy tales. Why is that? Why do people think that? Because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. And and you may have felt that way, thought that way about God's Word, but the moment you were regenerated by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God came in you, your relationship with the Bible, your view of the Bible radically changed. And, And originally, you didn't want anything to do with the Bible. You thought it was a useless book, just like any other book, but now you can't get enough of it. In fact, you carry it around with you wherever you go. Why? Because you have the Spirit of God. And He's revealed to you that this is God's Word. Some say the writers of Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit, much like Shakespeare or Beethoven were inspired to write their epic plays and scores. Some say writers, the writers of Scripture, were like secretaries, and the Holy Spirit audibly dictated the actual words he wanted them to write down. It's called the 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 um, uh, dictation theory. Others say that the Holy Spirit provided the writers of Scripture with the general concepts or ideas, and let them choose the specific words as they wrote. Some say the Holy Spirit only inspired the spiritual parts of the Bible, but not the parts dealing with science or history. That's why there's some errors, you know, in the scientific uh, details or some of the historical facts. But others, including myself, including our elders, hopefully including all of you, are committed to what is referred to as the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. Fancy little phrase there, but you need to know it, okay? Verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture which simply means each and every word of the Bible was written by God himself, verbal, every word. He didn't just give men general ideas or basic thoughts and left the exact wording to them. Uh, um, he wasn't just expressing, uh, they, they weren't just expressing God's thoughts in their words, okay? This was verbal, this was the, the actual words. Plenary means every part, The the whole thing, not just the truths about spiritual things, it's also the scientific uh, details, the historic information, which is also equally accurate and reliable. So let me give you a a quick definition of inspiration. Don't try to write it down, just listen, see if it resonates in your heart and mind as one that has the Spirit of God in them. The supernatural, this is the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration. Inspiration is the supernatural process whereby the Holy Spirit superintended human authors using their individual personalities, backgrounds, and writing styles to compose and record his word without error in the original manuscripts. Let me say that again. The supernatural process Inspiration is a supernatural process whereby the Holy Spirit superintended human authors using their individual personalities, backgrounds, and writing styles to compose and record His Word without error in the original manuscripts. It's what we refer to as dual authorship. That it was, that that, that, that their thoughts and their words, the writers of Scripture, their thoughts, their words, were their own, but they weren't their own. their, Their thoughts, their words were their own, but they weren't their own you're like, okay, now you lost me. Well, I'm lost with you then, okay? Because this comes down to, again, one of those mysteries of the scriptures, like how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? How can God be sovereign and man be responsible, right? There's these things that seem to clash in our finite minds that don't seem to fit or can't, be, can't coexist, but they're all over the scriptures, And oftentimes right next to each other and we just have to accept and go, okay, I may not understand that fully, but that's what the scripture says, so I've got to accept it by faith. So the point is this, that the writers of scripture wrote down word for word exactly what God wanted them to write and so this book is the very words of God. B.B. Warfield, you may have heard of him. He was the professor at Princeton Theological Seminary when it was a seminary, Princeton, right? Um, For 34 years, he was considered one of the greatest defenders of the inspiration of Scripture in our modern times, who provided the best defense of the conservative view of inspiration of Scripture Uh, in the English language. It's called The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. Some of you may have a copy of that book on your bookshelf. It's a classic, very academic, not easy to read. But let me just... Share a very simple quote that hopefully will make you appreciate B.B. Warfield and all the effort he put into um, defending the inspiration and authority of the Bible. He said this, and I quote The Bible is the Word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. I love that. The Bible is the Word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So, how do we know that the Bible is accurate? God wrote it. God can be nothing but accurate. He's perfect, right? Makes no mistakes. How do we know God wrote it? Well, he said he wrote it. What about those who argue that the Bible is written by men? Anybody ever have somebody say, well, the Bible's written by men, as if it's like, oh, sorry, you gotta throw away your primary source and let's just talk. Let's just share opinions and ideas with one another. I ain't throwing away my, my, my source of truth this is this is this is my basis for what I'm going to tell you. It's not, this is not my opinion versus your opinion. This is God's word versus your opinion. But people say, "Well, what about, you know, it's just a book written by men." Well, smart men would never have written a book that damned them eternally to a place like hell. Smart men would have never written a book that made salvation beyond their ability to achieve on their own. Smart men would never call themselves desperately wicked worms who are by nature object of God's wrath. Smart men would never make up a religion requiring them to hate their father and mother and take up their cross and to die. Furthermore, there's no way to explain how approximately 40 men from different backgrounds, vocations, continents, languages over the course of 1,500 years wrote 66 separate books and there is not one contradiction and there is one common theme that ties them all together. That would be impossible unless one person controlled the whole process and that one person is the Holy Spirit. And so the accuracy and the harmony of the Bible demand that it was inspired by God. Samuel Chadwick, an old English Methodist minister, said this, quote, I've guided my life by the Bible for more than 60 years and I tell you there is no book like it It is a miracle of literature, a perennial spring of wisdom, a wonder of surprises, a revelation of mystery, an infallible guide of conduct, and an unspeakable source of comfort. Pay no attention to people who discredit it, for I tell you, they speak without knowledge. It is the word of God itself. So, as we're talking about, and as we're learning together, what does it mean to be steadfast? and standing firm in the last days. You know as well as I do that the Scripture's inerrancy and authority and sufficiency is being attacked now in our day and age more than it ever has. And that's why we must stand firm and remain steadfast on the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. And in fact, that's... Hopefully what you are committed to, especially if you are a member of Lakeside Bible Church. As I was studying this text, I was reminded of our doctrinal statement. I thought I'm going to go back and reread our doctrinal statement. Not the whole thing, just the front end here. And, and I think it's, it's, it, this, is, this is how we are seeking to apply verses like this, okay? So this is the, the preface of our doctrinal statement. Hopefully you're familiar uh, with it. This is the preface to what we teach. Doctrinal statement of Lakeside Bible Church. Lakeside Bible Church is deeply committed to the absolute authority of the Bible. We're convinced that the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live. Our ultimate priority is to glorify God by faithfully proclaiming the truth of his word so that people can clearly understand it and practically apply it to their lives. And we haven't even got to the the actual statement about the Bible yet, okay? Okay. And there's a, there's a short little statement has like four or five paragraphs. That's your homework, by the way. Go online um, and find our doctrinal statement. Go dig the doctrinal statement out from your membership packet and just reread that first section on the Bible. And that's what I did. I was like, oh yeah, that's good. Oh, I'm glad we say that. Oh, I forgot about that verse. But, but it's all contained right in that little front section on the Bible. And we end, the, end that. In fact, you can go on, on our website and we summarize uh, our doctrinal statement with this one little sentence about the Bible. We believe every word of the original writings of both the Old and New Testaments is inspired by God and therefore inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. The Bible is the final authority for everything we believe and do at Lakeside Bible Church. And you should be able to say the same thing about you personally, that the Bible is the final authority for everything that you believe and everything that you do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you have laid a firm foundation for our faith in your excellent word. And I pray that you would help us to faithfully build on that foundation of your word and that we would know what we believe and why we believe it so that we would not be duped by false teachers and their devious, deceptive, destructive doctrines, which we're about to learn about in this next chapter. We know if we don't know the truth that we'll be easily led astray by error. So this is important that we really land on this and are convinced of this. And uh, we also just thank you for the motivation that we get from knowing that uh, Jesus is coming back and he could come back today. And that should motivate us and drive us to live lives that are pleasing to you and that are growing and maturing more and more into the likeness of Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would use this message today to help people come to Christ and to become like Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.